Welcome back into the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bernstein. This week, we're going to dive into the memory of Ralph Natale, uh, the controversial former godfather of the Philadelphia La Cosa Nostra crime family, the Bruno Scarfer crime family. Um, Ralph Natale, 86 years old, passed away this week. He was someone that uh, was a bit of a lightning rod, and we're going to bring on Dave Schratweiser, a good friend of the show, the award-winning investigative reporter from Philadelphia, Fox Philly 29, Philly Prime podcast, the Mob Sit Down blog. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we're, we're going right to the source. Uh, Dave has been chronicling the Philly Mafia for going on 30, 40 years now. And uh, he was, you know, on the front lines with Ralph Natale when he came home from prison in 1994. I believe it was either September or October of 94 and assumed the reins of the crime family in, in a bit of a miraculous ascension, um, controversial ascension. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, Dave, what's the, uh, you know, what's the pulse on the streets of Philadelphia right now? Just for people that don't know, real quick, Ralph was boss from 94 uh, till 99 when he flipped, uh, became the first Correct. sitting mafia don of an American uh, crime family to turn witness for the government. So five year, five year run. Yeah. Much ballyhooed headline by the FBI when, uh, Ralph decided to flip and uh, cooperate with the government. But, uh, the buzz on the street right now, it's, um, you know, it goes everything from, uh, you know, to shame, feel bad for his family to good from the mob guys, uh, who are, uh, probably uh, overjoyed that he's no longer with us. Um, I spoke to Dan Pearson today on my podcast. He's the author of uh, Last Don Standing. Um, Ralph's memoir. Book about Ralph, Ralph's memoir, which uh, you, Scott, and I have discussed many times. Yep. And uh, Dan was uh, emotional about that and the loss of a good friend there. But uh, Ralph had lots of friends and lots of enemies. Um in and out of the mob world. But, uh, you know, I think people were just kind of taken aback because they didn't know he was, uh, he wasn't doing well. Um, I spoke to him last time in June, sounded pretty good. He's had some health problems, but, uh, you know, was, uh, anxiously working towards a TV series with, uh, producer Benny boom out of Philadelphia, uh, TV kind of docu-series based on his book, and, uh, you know, he seemed pretty good back in June, um, but apparently of late uh, was not doing well. And I believe he passed away over the weekend uh, in his sleep, from what I've been told. Uh, Dan Pearson and others who knew him very well from working on projects with him uh, clearly were uh, emotionally upset about the whole situation. But uh, different story on the street. Yeah, you know, full disclosure, I think I've spoken about it on this podcast before, but if I haven't, uh, I was involved uh, with Ralph and Dan and and uh, that book project at the very early stages, um, I have nothing but, you know, in terms of a, a, on a personal level, um, I have nothing but positive things to say about Ralph and Dan and that whole camp. Um, they were really good to me in the about six months that I spent with them um, putting together the, the book proposal um, that eventually became The Last Don Standing. And, uh, you know, I might diverge from, 
I shouldn't say I might. I do diverge from some of the narrative, <laughs> some of the narrative that was put forth in that book, and that was one of the reasons that I ended up leaving the project. That I didn't feel comfortable with some of that narrative. Um, but on a personal level, uh, Ralph was incredibly likable. Um, he was incredibly um, well spoken and uh, a conversationalist, uh, a, a true. Um, politician. Uh, and I think we're going to unpack it a little bit here, but to start, I think, you know, he gets dinged for the way that he ascended to the throne. And to me, that actually, I think should be a feather in his cap in a lot of ways, the way that he maneuvered from a unmade associate doing 15 years in prison and use those 15 years to network with the New York mafia families to mm-hmm. align with the younger uh, Philly mob generation uh, to then uh, oppose John Stanfa's uh, early 90s reign, uh, the Sicilian Don Stan- uh, John Stanfa, who was put in place by the, by the New York mob, had been uh, part of Angelo Bruno's inner circle, uh, arguably was, was involved in, in Bruno's assassination, and, and Ralph Natale had... Uh, come up under under Bruno and uh to to be able to you know politic your way into a boss's seat when you're not even a made guy that's something to me that's in, impressive that's like that if you were going to break down the positives and negatives of Ralph Natale that goes in in the positive category on oh, in yeah, my book probably number no, number one on the list and you know there's a lot of maneuvering by both sides here Joey Merlino yeah. and Ralph were in the same prison together McKean Yep. Uh, they would get visitors at the same time in the same visit room together and have conversations. Michael Changlini would go up there. Tommy Horsehead Scafidi would go up there, a couple of other guys. Uh, and they would all talk in the, uh, in the prison. And that's where this plan was hatched for Ralph when he got out in 94. And Joey got out in November of 94. The, the plan was hatched to kind of take over Philadelphia with Ralph as the boss and Joey and uh, Michael and all those guys underneath them. Um, actually, I think Joey was really the boss, but Ralph wanted to be the head guy, so they made him the head guy. Uh, you know, you, there's all kinds of stories about how he got made, who made him. The one story that seems consistent is that Joey made him when they came out of prison and he became the boss. Which is where, all the, was, which is where all the controversy yeah. comes from. But you know what? Yeah, <laughs> to me, yeah. it's kind of well, like... that controversy and his... And his claim that he was made by Angelo Bruno and Carlo Gambino later on in the book. Yeah, right. The yeah. root of the controversy initially when he testified or when he, uh, the, the, the whole story about Ralph's ascension was coming out was that, you know, mm-hmm. Ralph wasn't a made guy, that he got out of prison, that Joey, who had been a made guy but wasn't at that point anything more than a soldier, uh, mm-hmm. made Ralph. And then Ralph declared himself the boss and named Joey his underboss. I mean, it was— it was a unicorn yeah. of a situation. It's never happened before. Yeah. Well, I mean, but the bottom line was that that's, that was the setup. I mean, we right. saw the setup on the street. Ralph would hold meetings over in the old Garden State racetrack over in Cherry Hill, up in the uh, up in the bar overlooking the track every afternoon or the courier a couple and times Ives a week. And, was the headquarters. Yeah, and yep. all the, I sat at that bar in his seat one day and was told I had to move by the bartender. I told him to go screw himself. I wasn't moving. You know, pour me a beer and we'll sit here. We were waiting for Ralph to come over. But the bottom line is the guys would come over from Philly, Stevie Mazzone, George Borghese, 
some of the other guys, Marty Angelina. There are pictures out there on the internet from parties they were at where Ralph is posing all suited up with the rest of the crew. I posted one this week, a black and white photo, which had uh, Steve Mazzone in it, the uh, uh, alleged uh, acting street boss in Philadelphia, Michael Lancelotti, and Capo Marty Angelina. Yep. So, I mean, they had no problem taking pictures with the guy, all suits and tied, you know, ready to go to a meeting or wherever they were, you know, dinner, uh, Christmas party, whatever. So uh, clearly, if if that was what the structure was supposed to look like from the street view, that's what it looked like. But let, let's also be clear, and I, you know, I want to try to separate fact from fiction as much as possible. Um, mm-hmm. The fact, the fact of the matter is, you can sit there and we can debate, you know, the the order of operations or the departure from <laughs> traditional protocol about how Ralph A got made and then how Ralph ascended to being a godfather. But the fact of the matter is his reign, his ascension, his grabbing uh, a hold of that crime family was fully mm-hmm. sanctioned by the New York mafia. The only people that were not sanctioning that were the Lucchese's and and Vic Amuso, uh, who who was being you know in some ways puppeted by Nicky Scarfo, but the, yeah. the 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 Gam the Gambinos, the Genovese, the Colombos, they all recognized Ralph, so he was no he was not a um, a, a false don, which I think some no. people try to paint that narrative of you know he was a total rogue. Well, yeah, there were mm-hmm. some parts of his rise to power that don't fit the traditional rise to power. Mm-hmm. But again, he, he, that was, that was part of the plan that he was hatching in, in prison was making those yeah, contacts with those crime families. Yeah. Um, so he could do what he did in the nineties. Yeah. Well, keep in mind that the guy did 40 years in prison, Yeah, uh, 12 years for arson, uh, 15 years for another crime, 13 for another. And during those time periods in the different prisons he was in, he met a lot of guys, a lot of wise guys, a lot of New York guys, a lot of Philly, old-time Philly guys. I mean, he made the rounds, right. and he made the contacts. He, By his own account, he used to drive Angelo Bruno, to uh, the boss of the Philly mob at the time, into New York to all the meetings. And he, you know, as in a, most associates sit at the bar while the boss is sitting at the table in the back having dinner with the rest of the crew. Um, you don't get a seat at that table unless you're somebody who's made or ranking or depending upon what the meeting's about. And unfortunately, or fortunately, Ralph was at the table sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are pictures of him with Jimmy Hoffa right. and other guys, uh, you know, like that. Uh, Skinny Razor, he knew from Philadelphia, who was also well-known in the prisons. Uh, well-known among mob Another figures. Skin, skinny, uh, skinny Razor was Nicky Scarfo's mentor as well as Ralph Natale's mentor. That's kind yep. of an interesting yep. historical note that, you know, two godfathers or two future godfathers sure. of the Philly mob were were uh, mentored by the same guy, but they were in different yeah. eras. Yeah, and I think where this kind of runs afoul, Scott, is where I mentioned before. Uh, in the book, yeah. uh, Ralph is claiming that uh, he drove Angelo Bruno to New York one day and they went to see Carlo Gambino and somehow ended up at Tommy Gambino's house. That's uh, Carlo's son. And there was a making ceremony. He got made by Gambino and Bruno. Now that seems a little far-fetched. 
And uh, not only is it far fetched, and this is the issue I take with and, that, and it doesn't and it doesn't ring true with what other people have said about how it doesn't he ring made. true with that, his own no. testimony. And by the yes. way, the testimony that he's giving is you or should, I should say the deal that he's making, the 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 cooperation deal he's making is contingent on on the um, truthfulness of what he's testifying to. So right. if what he said in his book is true, then he should have been he, kicked out of witness protection and been put back in prison. Right. Well, if, if that's true, he lied on the stand because he said on the stand that he turned down a effort by Angelo Bruno to induct him into the mob, that he turned it down. Yeah. Well, if he's now saying he was, or in his book he was saying that, uh, clearly that flies in the face of what he testified to and that means he did not he didn't tell the truth on the stand if that's the case yeah. if that's the case you just didn't need to embellish like ralph was enough yeah. of an entity minus the fact that he wasn't made i understand that was a mm-hmm. a, um, a sensitive subject or a um, right. you know mm-hmm. a, a, it strikes a nerve what you will because ralph considered him mm-hmm. the, you know ralph considered himself the epitome of a cosa nostra so mm-hmm. the fact that he wasn't made and had to you know take the throne in this unconventional manner, I know always mm-hmm. irked him. And, 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 and his legacy in his mind was, I think in his own mind, he felt that that besmirched his legacy. So he, so when he gets out of prison and wants to set the record straight, you know, and, and create his own narrative, he's mm-hmm. backtracking to kind of retrofit uh, uh, a legacy that in some ways doesn't fit with reality. And I just didn't, I don't. I don't know why you needed. You didn't need to embellish. Like I, another thing, I want to uh, unpack here in terms of fact and fiction. Ralph was far, far, far from a wannabe. Ralph was as real no. deal as you get. Ralph was a a, a, a genuine, cold blooded killer uh, who, a, at the drop of a dime or a blink of an eye, if Angelo Bruno told him to go clip someone, whether it be in Philadelphia, New Jersey, Detroit, Chicago, New York, he was doing it. So I mean that yeah. that part is all as as legitimate as legit can come. Um, he yeah, was I mean, no listen, wannabe. Dan Pier- no, Dan Pearson said on uh, the Philly Prime podcast with me today that Ralph wore his flag, and he was proud to wear the flag, and he didn't mind telling you he was proud to wear the flag. Mm-hmm. And you know, listen, the first time I met Ralph Natal, he was Natal, he was. He was jogging around Cooper River Park, which is in Pensauken, New Jersey, just across the bridge, the Ben Franklin Bridge from Philadelphia. He lived there with his wife in the, in the, in the towers there, and he jogged on the same path every single day. And my cameraman and I at the time, Brad Now, staked him out one day, got plenty of pictures of him jogging, and it sat in the park in the little stadium there uh, in the bleachers as he finished his run and was cooling off, shirt off, very proud of himself that he was in crack shape at his age at the time was around 60, maybe 62. Uh, and he looked like a million bucks for a guy that age, all tanned up. And he came over and sat down. He didn't jog away. He didn't run away. He sat there. Not only did he sit there, but he talked about Joey Merlino and he said, Joey Merlino, he's a real man. And he said, if I had to go to war, I want Joey Merlino in the foxhole next to me. He's a real man. I mean, he openly talked about that and openly was basically saying, we're together and listen to me pumping up Joey and, and had no problem. And, dude, he sat there for 20 minutes on camera and spoke to us. Yep. Could have run away, could have walked away, could have said, go screw. He could have said a few other things. He didn't do any of those. 
And I got to tell you, I got to respect a guy like that. I mean, I always conducted myself as a reporter like that. If somebody said something about somebody, I went right to the person and asked them if they wanted to comment. And Ralph had no problem commenting when we, when we approached him. Never. Yeah, and I think what gets lost in the controversy of Ralph Natale's legacy and the debating of it, and you know, clearly with the the, the uh, emergence of social media, you know, that that debate gets amplified and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But you know, there were a lot of positive. If if you're gonna you know uh, do a uh, analysis of Ralph as a don. Mm-hmm or Ralph as a gangster, Ralph as a, a member of the Cosa Nostra, there were a lot of positives that I think get lost uh, within the controversy. And and then yeah. and then with, you know, Ralph doesn't do himself any favors, in my opinion, mm-hmm. by the over-embellishing and straight up, in some cases, lying uh, that take away from the positives. And 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 I yeah. think there was a lot of, he had a lot of potential and... Uh, uh, to to really, you know, I, I dare I say this, he had the potential to be one of the all-time greats in terms of the world of of, of mafia leaders. It didn't, uh, he didn't fulfill that potential, but I think he mm-hmm. was trending in that direction, uh, 94, 95, 96, and then uh, 96 into 97, um, things began to sour uh, between him and, and the younger and the younger guys. He gets caught up in a drug investigation out of South Jersey. He gets caught up in an investigation involving the guys in Philly, obviously. Um, you know, a lot of things start to happen, and that's when, the, as I said, the wheels started to come off for not just Ralph, but Joey Merlino ends up in jail, then Ralph ends up in jail. But, Dave, even before yeah. that, I'm talking about the, the, mm-hmm. the simmering animosities that were there in the year or two right. before everyone got jammed up. And right. um, oh, let me just set the stage, and then I'm going to throw it to you. So uh, when right. I when I look at that whole situation uh, from let's say '90 to '98, um, this was or '97, '98, whenever the relationship between Joey and Ralph started to fall apart, th- they both benefited from each other. One wasn't using the other; they were both using each other. You know, Joey mm-hmm. was using Ralph for you know, sanctioning from New York because Joey needed those connections in New York that he didn't have at that time. Um, and Ralph was providing legitimacy because Ralph was a was an OG, r- regardless of maid status. And Joey was providing Ralph muscle on the street and a, a younger group of guys that in Ralph's mind, he could puppet. Um, uh-huh. Now they get on the street and everything's fine for a year or two. I have attributed a lot of what went wrong to Ralph's relationship uh, with Ruthie, with Ruthie, is it Secchio or Secchio? Secchio, I believe. Secchio. Uh, Ralph began a, uh, a romance with a contemporary of Joey and and Joey's crew. Um, And I think the way that she treated him in public, the way that he treated her or wanted his younger guys to treat her. Uh, I know one of the the famous uh, anecdotes was, you know, we, we grew up with Ruthie on the street corner, and, and she and Ralphie wants us to to treat her like she's Princess Di. Um, and where do you agree that that was a a a kind of a turning point? Uh, what what were the what were the things at play that frayed 
that relationship the, until the until they both got locked up. Well, it's funny. Dan Pearson said today on my podcast that he he felt the thing that kind of doomed this from the beginning was the generational differences here. Mm-hmm. Ralph's, you know, eighty six. Joey's going to be sixty mm-hmm. in March, so he's twenty four, twenty five years old, older than Joey. And that generational thing there, kind of, I think, was never meant to be. I think Ralph relished the fact that he had young studs working for him, under him, that kind of thing. Maybe he played that a little too strong. The Ruthann stuff clearly rubbed those guys the wrong way. But look, I I was talking to guys on the street, guys who are now high-ranking guys uh, at the time, and, you know, you'd say something about Ralph and they're like, Oh yeah, yeah. Ralph's the boss. And they kind of like chuckle under their breath, you know, or at least we're letting them think he is kind of thing. And I think it was maneuvering on both sides. I think Joey was using Ralph and Ralph was using Joey. Joey using Ralph was to get that New York connection that you talked about was to have an old time guy who had tons of prison connections and everywhere else. And who literally wasn't afraid to do anything. And not only that, but tell you that he did it. Yeah. And, you know, he was, listen, like Dan said, the guy wore his flag and he wasn't afraid to tell you he did. And if he needed to get in your face, he did. He told a story today about some guy delivering envelopes to him when he was the boss. And three times he told the guy to come check in, which means come see me. And, you know, I want to talk to you. And three times he never came. He just kept sending envelopes. And at some point, he claims, or he claimed to Dan Pearson and Larry McShane, who wrote the book, that he said to Joey, this guy's got to come see me. Why isn't he coming to see me? And Joey said he would take care of it, and he never did. And that turned out to be something that irked him, that I summoned the guy. And listen, we know guys who've been killed Mm -hmm. for not coming when they were summoned. Uh, I don't know what happened to the individual he's talking about, but uh, and I don't. he didn't say who it was, but those kind of things set those guys off. And I do think they didn't like Ralph being as bodacious as he was kind of out there, you know, I'm the boss kind of swagger kind of deal. I mean, Joey carries that swagger just by keeping his mouth shut, dressing sharp, wearing his Rolex, you know, and, and, you know, driving a hot car that somebody else is paying for, you know, that kind of thing. It's a different generation. And I think, that doomed that thing from the beginning. You know what, Dave? I'm not saying I disagree with that wholeheartedly, but mm-hmm. I, I think the whole, well, there was a generation gap excuse is, is, is just a little bit misguided in the sense Ralph was not, I mean, yes, Ralph was an old school gangster and a, a guy that was pushing into his 60s when all these other guys were pushing into their 30s. Ralph was a young soul. I mean, mm-hmm. Ralph wasn't going. Oh, yeah. Ralph wasn't going to bed at eight o'clock when these guys oh, no. were headed out to the club. So, yeah. yes, there was a generation gap, but it wasn't the type of generation gap that existed. Let's say with the Gambinos, uh, mm-hmm. you know, ten years before that, with Castellano uh, and, yeah. and, and Gotti, or, or or the younger guys in that family, where Castellano was, you know living up on uh, in, in a mansion on a hill and, and was not having mm-hmm. any interaction with the, the rank and file. I mean, yes, right. there was a generation. Nope. I mean, there was a, there, clearly there was a generation gap in the fact that there was 35 years between Ralph and then all 
uh, Joey and all his crew. But I, I, I think, and I know I, I know I'm, I'm somewhat beating a dead horse, and I know Ralph did not want to talk about this at all, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't overemphasize how the Ruthie situation um, drove a, a wedge between them. And I go to one specific incident, and Dave, I'm guessing you've heard about this, um, and I want to get your take on it. Um, I, I have, in my research and, and talking to uh, a number of people, uh, like just like Dave himself, that uh, um, on the streets, guys that are ranking individuals, the guys that were at this incident that I'm going to bring up, that uh, either in early 90, early 98 or late 97, there was a party at the saloon. Um, Ralphie and Ruthie got into an altercation and Ruthie slapped Ralphie in front of everybody in public uh, for the perception that Ralph was, you know, ogling another woman. And I had two guys that were there that had told me that there was a a meeting in the back of the saloon or some type of quasi meeting in the back of the saloon in the, in the hour or two after that happened. And it was kind of decided amongst those guys. Like if Ralph doesn't go home and kill her right now and, and we never see her again, Ralph has lost us. Have you, have you heard about that, that incident? I've never heard. I, I have never heard that story. I know there were, there was a, genuine dislike of that relationship by the younger guys. I think George writes about the slap. If I'm not. Could be, could be. Uh, You're talking about George Anastasia. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. George Um, Anastasia, the the great George Anastasia. Yeah. But uh, I have never personally heard that story or had any of those guys tell me that story. I just think they weren't in favor of that setup from day one. Yeah, but when you're when you're you're a boss but, and you're you know, getting if, you're getting physically attacked like, yeah. by your girlfriend in public, right. yeah. And don't forget, the saloon is well known to be like Joey's favorite place. When Joey wants to go have a good dinner somewhere, yeah. and it, their food there is incredible, and it's a great place. And I'm not trying to besmirch that at all, but you know, Joey likes to hang at the bar, likes to have the upstairs room you know, likes to have dinner there all the time. As recently as one of his last visits to Philadelphia back in September, he was having dinner there. And he, you know, that's his place. And if, in fact, something like that did happen, it did occur there at a place like that, you could see why that would kind of set those guys off. I, I just I just think they didn't, they didn't like any of these arrangements to begin with. Yeah. I think they went and answered to Ralph. They... Oh, Ralph wants us over at the racetrack this afternoon. All right, let's take the ride over, you know, kind of thing. And he did what he wanted. He got what he wanted. They got what they wanted. But I'll tell you a different story. Um, If they didn't like him, kind of explain this one. I, one of those years, I want to say maybe 97, 98, was at the Palm Restaurant inside the Bellevue Hotel uh, on Broad Street in Center City. Uh, having a couple of drinks with some well-known attorneys uh, for Christmas, a couple of weeks before Christmas, my camera guy, uh, these two attorneys, George Anastasia was there. We were all at the end of the bar. 
Ralph, who was on probation at the time, walks in with Steve Mazzone. Ralph, dressed to the nine, Stevie with a suit on, sit down at the bar to have a couple of drinks. They got a follower down the other end of the bar, keeping an eye on things. Ralph's on probation. He's not supposed to be in Philadelphia. He's supposed to be in South Jersey where he's, you know, living in Pensacola right across the bridge. And here's Ralph sitting in the palm with Steve Mazzone, having a drink a couple weeks before Christmas. Sends the bartender, female, over to us and says, uh, Mr. Natale, Mr. Natale wants to buy you guys all a drink. She's got a hundred dollar bill in her hand that he gave her. And we politely declined and said, I said to the bartender, thank Mr. Natale for me. Appreciate the uh, gesture and everything like that, but, uh, we'll pay for our own drinks. And you know, she's like, well, you know, I don't want to go tell him that. I said, well, then I think you just made a hundred dollar tip. <laughs> don't worry about it. But you know, here's Ralph. If there's a falling out, why is Steve Mazzone having a couple of drinks with him in the Palm in, in Center City, Philadelphia, for anybody who walked in to see? And just so you know why they were there, precursor to Christmas dinner upstairs in a private room with all the big guys. How do I know that? Because an hour after I left the bar that night and was going home to my place, I get a phone call from a guy who is now a ranking guy, a name you and I well know, and I won't drop it here calls me and asks me, you're not going to report that, are you? You're not going to say that Ralph is in Center City sitting at the bar with Stevie, are you? Because, you know, that'll violate his parole and his probation. He could go back to prison. I said, dude, it's a couple of drinks before Christmas. I'm not talking to anybody about anything. I was there to have a couple of pops with some of my good friends before Christmas. But if you want to talk about whether they like being seen with them or not, here's Steve Mazzone, who's in trouble of his own right now with a racketeering indictment who was allegedly the underboss of the family sitting at the Palm restaurant, center city in violation of Ralph's parole, having a couple of drinks. So if they didn't like them, they didn't mind drinking with them at one of the best places in Philadelphia, the Palm restaurant. This goes to my, some of what my point was though, in terms of the potential that Ralph had. I don't think there's any doubt that early on in Ralph's reign, he had a thousand percent buy-in from these guys. Those guys mm-hmm. did yes. like, they did like him. I think yeah. it was over the years of Ralph over-promising and under-delivering, frankly, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it could that, be that began mm-hmm. to erode some of the, yeah. the good faith. But I don't think there was any question that they liked him and they supported him and they wanted... In some ways, I think they wanted him to succeed, but I think when they realized that maybe that wasn't in the cards and there was already this, mm-hmm. you know, shadow government at play. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yes, I, I don't I don't think those guys hated Ralph. Um, even at the end, I don't know if they hated Ralph. Um, but well, I, maybe I th- they saw it as a weakness, Scott. Yeah, maybe right. they saw his relationship right. with her Perception as a potential and, weakness. Yes. That's exactly yeah. what it was, because image and perception is everything in that world. Yeah, yeah. I don't know Ruth Ann. Uh, I never spoke to Ruth Ann. I don't care to talk to Ruth Ann. <laughs> uh, I, I don't usually get into personal relationships that individuals have with people they're not yeah. supposed to be having relationships with. Well, I wouldn't get in, I wouldn't get into it either if it wasn't the subject of a yeah. huge book. I mean, I, oh no, right. listen, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying anything you're you're talking about here is not true. Yeah, just, yeah. What I'm saying is. 
that's not an error. I dealt with what these guys did right. that was criminal, you know, and, and how I, they conducted the affairs of the Philadelphia mob at the time. But Dave, understand, I wouldn't be in, I wouldn't be interjecting it if I didn't feel like it no. played a role in in the politics of that crime family at that time. I mean, you know, if people want to have extramarital affairs, that's fine. I mean, I, I, I who, you yeah. know, in that world, it, it seems to be par for the course. Everyone's having extramarital affairs in that world. Yeah. I just think they they saw that potentially as a weakness, yeah. and uh, among the other things that were going on at the time, because there was some growing or eroding sentiment uh, among those guys on both sides, Ralph and on this. I've heard from guys the analogy, uh, and I, I think George uh, Anastasia in his book The Last Gangster, which by the way was, you know, I credit The Last Gangster and um, Blood and Honor for wanting you know for making me want to be a a, a mob writer a crime writer and mm-hmm. had such a huge mm-hmm. impact on me and, and ralph was a was a big part of the last gangster book um and you know uh, you 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 had a situation where ralph felt shunned um mm-hmm. he gets picked up in right. uh, the summer of 98 on a parole violation he's still the boss um, at the time, you know, all things being even, it was a pro violation. He was just looking at, you know, a max a couple years. Uh, he didn't, and maybe he did know, but the fact is there was a, another big drug case coming down the pike, but at the time mm-hmm. it was just a parole violation and the younger guys just almost immediately, uh, jump ship and, and stop returning his phone calls Stop consulting him. Stop sending money to his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you sense in that year uh, between '98 when he gets locked up and then '99 when he flips? Uh, could, could you sense there were things going on behind the scenes? Yeah, George and I were kind of hearing rumblings, and then the rumblings kind of became concern by the younger guys. Uh, and I kind of sensed that they might've been thinking, no, we might've made a mistake here, poking the bear and not doing what he wanted. And I hope this doesn't come back to get us at the end of the day. But, uh, we were constantly hearing like the low drum beat that got louder and louder and louder. I do actually remember the day George called me, and said to me, are you hearing what I'm hearing? And it was that Ralph was about to flip and was ticked off at those guys, pissed off at those guys, angry with those guys, and has had enough. And he's getting the no-comment routine from the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. I'm getting that. I'm hearing the rumblings that I'm talking about on the street. George is hearing them as well. And lo and behold, you know, what was a rumor became the fact and it all you know fell apart at that point and within months we have indictments of like the whole crew well joey was already off the street joey's already off the street at that point uh he gets picked up in april or may or maybe june of 99 i think they might i think ralph and joey got picked up almost a year apart i think it was june of 98 when Mm -hmm. when ralph gets picked up joey gets picked up in june of 99 uh, leaving, uh, I think, on a weekend in Margate, or maybe they get him right 
during the mm-hmm. uh and um so at, in the late 99 the news breaks that Ralph is has cut a cooperation deal he's the first sitting uh mob don in American history to flip there had been some acting mob mm-hmm. bosses that had flipped in the past but but no uh full-fledged godfather and it looks yeah. like it's this huge bombshell um that that everybody in that younger uh generation crew was going to be, you know, it was dead to rights because Ralph was going to take the stand and and finger them in a bunch of murders, and they were going to prison for the rest of their lives. Fast forward mm-hmm. a year and a half, and it's the, the the spring or summer of 2001, and it's the big racketeering trial, the murder and racketeering trial of, of Joey and all of his crew. Ralph's the star witness. It's uh, it was you know, it, it was going it, it was going viral before you even knew what going viral meant. In 2001, sure. in, at least in Philadelphia, it was on the front page mm-hmm. of every paper, the lead in every newscast for for three or four three four months as that trial went on, and Ralph takes yep. the stand, and it's it's like uh, something out of a movie. It's you know as much soap opera drama as you could imagine. You were there, and then at the end of the day, the jury doesn't really buy it, and no, they, they don't. They nail they they nail those guys on racketeering, but none of the murders stick. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. Ralph spends 14 days on the stand, like seven on direct and seven on cross. And by the end of the 14 days, it was like a bad heavyweight fight. I mean, bloodied and banged up uh, as sort of well as he did the first six or seven days. By the time the second seven days were over and the defense attorneys for the multiple defendants sitting at that table finished what they were doing, it it didn't end well. And actually, the show got stolen in that trial by Ron Previty and Tommy Scafidi. Um, And their testimony, I think, kind of solidified and kind of, you know, cemented the racketeering stuff that the government alleged against Joey, George Borghese, Steve Mazzone, John Changlini, you could go on and on, you know, and name the, the defendants in the case. And Tommy Scafidi um, was a was a Joey guy, uh, had grown who up with Joey, who switched over to Stanford side. Right, and then went to prison. And Previty, Ron, big Ron Previty, I'm just letting, I'm just letting the viewers, or yeah. the, sorry, the listeners, sure. for people that might right. not be super versed on Philadelphia, to just, and then Ron Previty, um, was a guy that was a, a police officer. A Philly, Philly cop out <laughs> yeah. in southwest Philadelphia who went bad, rogue cop. Right, Be- becomes a, uh, a bodyguard and um, a muscle for John Stampha. And then when Stampha right. gets locked up and and <laughs> the merlino Natali uh, reign begins, we have Ron Previty who's working for the government you know, uh, cuddles up with Joey and the cuddles, boys. It's a perfect way to explain. Cuddles up with Ralph. And cuddles you know up how? with Joey because he made he made money and yep. he brought money to the table and he was a money maker. Fortunately, that money came from the FBI. Yeah, and he's wearing a wire. Listen, he was in the cooperative mode when I was in the Attorney General's office in the early '90s, and he was working for the state police, and he was in under Stampa. They didn't use him at the time. It didn't come up at the time, but once he got up and running with the Merlino crew. He's up in Boston swinging uh, alleged or trying to swing alleged drug deals up there, all kinds of swag 
deals up there. And, you know, George wrote the book, The Last Gangster. I don't know if I agree with that. Joey's still standing last time I looked. Um, but Ron Brevity stole the show. It wasn't Ralph Natale that people were talking about at the end of that trial. It was, it was Ron Previty, at least the reporters who were there every day. And listen, he delivered, along with Scafidi and some of the other witnesses, the racketeering charges on these guys. Ralph was brought on to talk about murders. He actually pointed out a couple of guys in, in the audience who he claimed were killers and hitmen who weren't even charged in the case were sitting in the audience. Watch it. I mean, that's how far he went. He was there to talk about murder and to point the finger at those guys for murders. But it was murders he heard about and murders they told him about and circumstances they said to him and, you know, scenarios they laid out for him, not firsthand things that he was able to drop the hammer on. And from, again, from my research, uh, Mm. they were were playing fast and loose with the truth intentionally. (laughs) They were Mm. giving Ralph bits and and pieces of what happened, but, you know, intentionally feeding him misinformation in case he was ever on a witness stand pointing the finger at them. Yeah, and listen, that's the way those guys, the Merlino crew rolls. They're playing three chess games at one time, all the time. And they're making maneuvers, and they're kind of like street corner wise guy. And I mean wise guy like you're a wise guy, not a mob wise guy. You know, like wise guy little tricks that, like, people you didn't like in grade school used to play on you. It's like like rec league basketball players that can just kind of find their way into those seams. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, something like that. Or, Or, you know, watch me be a bully and he won't even know it's me kind of thing. And, listen, they like to gouge people. They thought they could gouge Ron Previty. Well, I don't think they gouged Ron Previty. At the end of the day, he did them pretty well. He ended up walking away with, what, a couple million dollars for his uh He made a lot work. of money from the FBI for doing what he did. Yeah. He got paid a lot of money. He was on the lecture circuit with them all the, way in, all the way over to Europe. You know, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, listen. But at the end of the day, nobody was talking about Ralph Natale at the end of that trial and the first sitting mob boss to flip. What they were talking about was his failure to deliver on the murder charges and, and talking about how Ron Previty, you want to say saved the day and Tommy Scafidi kind of set the table nicely because they turned on him too. And them turning on him forced him to turn on them, something he didn't want to do. And to this day, I don't think he's comfortable with having done it, but having said that, he thought he was going to come home and they were going to put him to sleep. Um, so let's um, take it to after trial. Um, it, it seems like the government jammed up Ralph, even though he cooperated, and they were mm-hmm. wanting to punish him for uh, the fact that he didn't get those <clears throat> murder convictions. And he ends up doing more time than any of the guys that he cooperated against. How, how do you reconcile that? Well, um, I don't know if he did more. He did probably the same. I think he did 13. Is that what he did? I think. Pretty sure. Joey did 12 or 13. George Borghese did 13 or 14. Um, listen, if you want to call that a victory because you didn't get you didn't get um, found guilty or 
there wasn't enough evidence uh, or unproven is the term that was thrown up in a lot of those murders. If you didn't get, if you call that a victory, fine. Steve Mazzone still spent seven to nine years in jail. John Changlini, same kind of time period. Angelo Lutz, six years in jail, a little more. Um, Joey, 12 or 13. Georgie, 13 or 14. That's a nice chunk of your life. It could have been life and it could have been worse. Yes. But at the end of the day, you know, both sides kind of got a little bit of what they wanted. If you look at it that way. So just to finish up here, what's the final verdict on his legacy? I mean, it's a complicated legacy. It's not, oh, uh, yeah, it it's, not it's not an easy thing to, I think, uh, analyze. No. And, uh, you know, I asked Dan that today, Dan Pearson, and he said, look, I haven't been around him a lot in the last four or five years. Um, you know, the, loved his family, the people who were around him, the, the real friends that he did, ha did have. But I, I think, you know, had a bad taste in his mouth from the whole experience. Uh, probably, you know, and listen, I asked Ralph in the last interview I did with him, um, how do you reconcile you telling me in 1995 that Joey was a real man and if you went to war, you want him in the foxhole next to you to what do you think of him now? And he said, might be among the worst mistakes <laughs> I made in my life. And you know what? Uh, uh, I think that haunted him. Yeah, but it's, but it's, but Dave, if he doesn't make that alliance with Joey, he never becomes the boss. Well, there, yeah, true, true, absolutely. So uh, he I needed Joey to fight the was, war for him. He was in prison. Right. And Joey needed the connections. Right. And at the end, at the end of the day, I think he was happier towards the end that he did the book, that he got to say what he wanted to say, that he wore his flag, as Dan Pearson said today. I think he was happy with that. He didn't really care what people were saying about it. But, dude, he was on Patrick Bet David's uh, Valuetainment uh, podcast, and he blew up and used terms like I was worse than cancer. Yeah. I mean, come on. When you hear something like that from somebody, you know the guy's not dealing with reality at that point and is really gone beyond puffing at that point and is just out there like pumping it up. Now, a couple million people watch that interview because Patrick does a really good job with his show. Yeah. And, and having said, having said all that, I think Ralph came to live with or settle into what was, was. And I said to Dan today, I'll always look at it like Ralph owned it. He did it. He owned it. If it didn't work out, he fought against it and was feisty coming back at you. But at the end of the day, he had no choice but to own it. And uh, unfortunately for him, um, he didn't get to see uh, the TV series get done. It, it's probably going to get done from what I'm hearing. Uh, but we'll see. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people still talking about that. The book did fairly well. Um, you know, he's been on a few, you know, big shows, things like that. But uh I think he kind of did it his way at the end of the day. And whether that was good or bad, I, you know, that's up for Ralph to decide, I think. Um, you know, God bless him. Well, I appreciate the time, Dave. Uh, please, all listeners, go check out Dave Schwartreiser. Uh, give them uh, where they can find you, podcast, blog, uh, all that stuff. Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. Philly, uh, Philly Prime Podcast. It's on, you can get it on Apple, Google, Simplecast. 
wildfirepodcast.com and mobtalksitdown.com. That's our website with George Anastasia. You can see all the mob videos we do like nobody else in the country does on that site. Uh, everything Philly mob and New York mob, that kind of thing is, uh, is on our site. And we always appreciate the listeners on the podcast and the viewers on the website. Um, you know, the mob is an interesting topic and people like to read about it and talk about it around the water cooler. You know, it's like football. Yep. You know, it's just something people like to talk about and it kind of is what it is. And I say, I say it in Phil, I tell people in Philadelphia, they, they follow the, the local mafia family, the way they follow the Eagles and the Flyers and the 76ers. Oh yeah. And the loyalty is sometimes amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, for all the bad these guys sometimes do, uh, you know, they own it. <laughs> you know, and they don't they don't they don't feel bad defending it. There's a lot of free Joey comments when Joey was in prison. Yeah, uh, you know that kind of thing. And there was a lot of nasty comments directed at Ralph uh, in social media the last few days oh, yeah, after no, we kind of put the story out there. So and you got them on your end as well. So you you know what I'm talking about. That's why I wanted to have this conversation because I don't think it's a black and white issue. I think there's a lot of gray. Oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt about it. And you know it it kind of is what it is. Uh, I think it'll probably fade from the headlines pretty quickly. Did not get a lot of media coverage here in Philadelphia. In fact, I don't even know if the Inquirer and the Daily News reported it. I know. It's surprising, it's surprising to me. Yeah, years years past, that would have been a front-page story yeah. for a couple of days. Yep. You know, um, but it was not uh, not to be. You know, so it is what it is. Dave and George are the gold standard for anyone that uh, I'm guessing people that are listening to this know that already. But if if you don't, uh, Dave Schratt-Weirson and George Anastasia, they are they are truly the uh, the LeBron James and Kevin Durant of uh, and Steph Curry of, of the mob genre, the mob reporting genre. And I, uh, I owe a lot of my career to these guys. So I appreciate that. And uh, listen, uh, George is a great guy to work with. And uh, it's my honor to work with the guy and uh you know he's the godfather of mob writers in my book he is in my book as well he's a class act thanks dave appreciate it scott thanks for having me on i appreciate it i wish you all the best with your podcast and everything else that you do thank you sir uh it's all good have a great day buddy i'm your host scott bernstein and uh we look forward to uh keep on bringing you fresh content every week and uh you know interacting with you and engaging with you and if you like what we're doing, uh, like, subscribe, retweet, share, and, uh, you know, we love it. We love bringing it to you. Uh, we appreciate all the support and all of the listenership, and uh, we'll be back with more content soon. Scott Bernstein, Jimmy Bucciolato, out. Out.